and welcome to the Food Manufacturer Podcast. I'm Bethan Grills and as usual I'm joined by my co-host Gwen Riddler. Pleasure to be here. Oh, that's a lovely introduction, isn't it? <laughs> so Gwen, as you know, we're testing the grounds of this podcast. We're, sh- we're shaking it up a bit. Um, basically, we can do whatever we want. Um, we could ruin it. We can make <laughs> it wonderful. So I thought, why not bring back a beloved feature of Food Manufacturer which happened before Beth, a time which I know no one likes to think of, but it was a good feature. I mean, you're talking about a time at Little Bygone Errors even before I was around. Absolutely. You, you, you know what this feature is. Go on, give it, give it an introduction. I guess this week we're bringing back a good week, a bad week. And for the listeners who might not be familiar with this feature that existed before Gwen and Beth, what is it? It clues in the title a little bit. Really, it's uh, talking about something from the week that uh, was a big win for the industry, uh, something that we feel that, well, was good, a good week. And on the opposite side, just looking at something that wasn't as spectacular for our friends in the manufacturing industry. A little delve into that, an opinion on that. Just a little delve in, just a little poke, just yes. to make you feel worse as about a treat. it. Yes, absolutely. We like doing treats here at Food Manufacturer. So as a specialist in all things news, Gwen, um, I thought you might like to start us off with Good Week, Bad Week. Um, really, we should call it Good Week, well, actually Good Month, really. Good good Month, Bad Month, because we're doing this podcast on a monthly basis. True. So, but we're just, we're going to skirt over the details. As, as, as I just said, listeners, we're... You know, we're finding our way with this podcast. So what's been happening that's really bad? Really bad? Oh, boy. We're launching into the bad before the good, are we? We are, because they, you know, give me the bad news before the good news, right? Yes, of course. Well, for me personally, and this um, is quite poignant because we've obviously just had um, Butcher Shop of the Year uh, over the past week. Uh, which was a big celebration of all things butchery, uh, you know, the smaller meat in, um, players in the meat industry. But recent stats have come out that smaller abattoirs are in decline. And it's not, this isn't particularly new news. You know, we were reporting on these sort of things four or five years ago. You know, as Brexit was rolling around, we were hearing more and more about these smaller businesses that couldn't keep up and um, they just didn't have the funding to keep running. Now, some more cynical people might say that perhaps there are larger abattoirs out there that can serve a greater number of people. But more often than not, um, these smaller abattoirs are serving meat firms in very remote locations and they tend to be the closest point of contact for an abattoir for them. And um, there was a recently a survey that did go out um, for players in the meat industry. There was new research by the Sustainable Food Trust and National Craft Butchers uh, that found that 88% of the 1,300 businesses that they asked uh, said that their closest abattoir was either essential or important to the success of their company. And 64% said that the availability or the lack of that availability uh, really impacted their future business plans. So the fact that this is an issue that has been going on for some time now and that that the rate of small abattoirs closing is at a rate of 10% uh, each year is quite concerning because, as we all know, the food and drink industry is majority made up of um, small and medium-sized enterprises. So the fact that such a crucial part of the supply chain is at such risk and seems to be at risk for such a long time is quite, you know, it's disheartening. And, um, yeah, it plays into so many parts, even outside of just the business side of things, of you know, obviously the risk to business. The fact that some of these businesses are then having to go to larger abattoirs, they could be 200 miles away. Yeah. Um, which not only does that create uh, issues with quality in terms of uh, food standards, animal welfare, that's 200 food miles. That's that's 200 miles of carbon emissions and and you know the, all that sort of things. That's yeah, sustainability is a huge part of a lot of manufacturers' goals right now. So you you know it's adding on to that. So it's just 
compounding more and more issues and it's just yeah if anything that's sort of been a bad week for me and has been a bad week for i guess a lot of uh meat industry players for the past few years is definitely the decline of our avatars mm. do we know why we're seeing that decline is it to do with lockdowns is it to do with um bills you know what what's driving that do we know so there has been a, uh, some fingers pointed at a lack of funding being given by the government towards small lavatoires. And there is a, uh, an element of Brexit playing into it, especially with the change of regulations, a lack of vets and also butchers as well, which hasn't been helped by the fact that um, there has been less access to... Typically, you would get staff in from perhaps overseas for these sort of things uh, to work um, seasonally. Um, and without that seasonal staff, you can't operate. Um, so that's been another barrier that to to the industry. So it's just it seems, it seems to be that there's just been uh, many, many, many different factors that are all piling up. And the smaller the business, the less resilient you are to these sort of mm. impactful changes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you know what, Gwen, on the, the butchers front, you mentioned about Butcher Shop of the Year, which is, um, I suppose, a side hustle of ours, <laughs> isn't it? Let's let's call it that. Um, under Meats Trades Journal, um, existing um, on, on social. So you can find um, Meats Trade Journal on, on Insta, on Facebook and on Twitter. I do encourage you to go on the Instagram because there is a fab video of um, the entire room dancing to the Yumpa band um which was brilliant some people were more into it than others i i was very into it <laughs> it was it was joyous actually um but you know what gwen there was over a hundred people there and so many young people mm. as well so that gave me a lot of hope so hopefully that that bad news we might be seeing a, a bit of a change because it does look like we're getting some fresh faces into that sector. So fingers crossed we'll be coming to you, you know, hopefully not yeah. with the same news. Uh, in a, in a, in, well, I'll say, you know, it wouldn't be next month, but maybe in a couple of years time. So um, that's a very pessimistic way to start a podcast. Um, apologies for that. So let's let's have the good news. Come on, let's let's bring this audience back up. Yeah, well, aside from obviously um, the, the aforementioned uh, Butcher Shop of the Year and, and the, the joyous energy that that brought, I would say that a majority of the industry uh, all had their eyes on Prime Minister's uh, recent Farm to Fork Food Summit uh, and what would come out of that. Yeah, Some may say that not enough. We said good news. But uh, <laughs> um, no, I'm always the realist. But some of the things that did come out of that, one of the things that I think could be a potentially a big opportunity is uh, a change or a, a um, proposed change regulations uh, that would allow uh, farmers to convert existing buildings into sites that can be used for food manufacturing. Yeah, that was very exciting to hear. The legal side of things couldn't tell you right now because the way that they have posited it is that they, um, you know, if you have an existing site and you want to start turning your the meat that you, um, you cultivate on sites into um, to send out for mass market to to process them, um, you don't go have to go through planning applications. Uh, that was the big um, draw for it. Obviously, the legal side of things. That's that opens up a whole new um, question of you know, surrounding food safety and regulations and um, quality. But the opportunity that I feel that that could bring is a good first step towards. You know, we've been talking for a very long time that once this whole Brexit situation comes and goes, and we're fully out of the EU, the whole idea is that we could take back. Uh, our own regulations and start setting things for ourselves. There hasn't always been a lot around well, what that actually means. What regulations are we actually going to set for ourselves? How are we actually going to start running the country the way that we want to run the country, etc.? Um, and this is a clear sign that there's thought going into that. Well, maybe there are ways that um, we can start doing things for ourselves. 
and uh, yeah, I just think it's, uh, it creates a lot of opportunity that we can see just a lot more players in the manufacturing space, a lot more, you know, I'm always keen on the idea that competition, you know, breeds um, innovation. Mm. And having more competition come about and more players in the industry is always a good thing. Yeah. Um, especially when there is bad news about insolvencies and bo- and and administration going around to hear that there's an opportunity, a glimmer of hope for people to, who do want to start a business, that there is something that they can do. Even if it is just a, a, a quote-unquote side hustle at the moment, um, I think that's a great opportunity. And, you know, there were some nuggets of wisdom, uh, nuggets of, uh, of uh, opportunity that were, could be taken away from that meeting. Mm, mm, absolutely. Um, I think that's a nice little bit of, of good news there, Gwen. Some nice alliteration there as well. Hmm. Um, I, I, you know, I would have loved to have attended that meeting and been a, a fly on the wall because I really, really would have liked to have seen what um, Jeremy Clarkson had to say. I think a lot of people in the industry would have liked to have been privy to that yeah. um, that conversation. Yeah. But yes, no, absolutely. So, uh, quite a few people sort of went on socials and they were saying, you know, food bosses, why is he there? And um, I mean, whatever you think of the guy... Um, and whether or not you consider him to be a, a food boss, that's, you know, let's put that aside for a moment. I think that he has done a lot of good for farming and perhaps it could have been a good thing in terms of celebrity endorsement, having him there. But, um, you know, I, I, I don't know access to the whole list of who I don't know whether uh, that was the whole list was public. I mean, I it know. wasn't. It was uh, some people. I don't know what the rules were, mm. um, whether or not you could announce. Um, obviously, um, Karen Betts, the FDF, uh, was in in the room and mm. um, she made it quite clear that um, her takeaways from it, um, you know, quite a few sort of industry leaders. But we there hasn't been a sort of rundown because the way it was described that there was actually food stalls in um number 10 that mm. there, it was more or less like a mini conference yeah uh, a, a sort of mini expo of um food and drink from around britain so there obviously was um there was some there was representation but what that representation was uh, people are either keeping quiet about it or have been told to keep quiet about yeah, it. Yeah, which is really interesting because, you know, she said there were a few people like, so Emily Mars, FSA, obviously did her key takeaways as well. But, uh, yeah, why why don't we have a full list? If anyone knows, let us know because um, I'd be very interested. Um, so should we actually get down to the topic of the day? Okay, I've got to give it an official intro. So here it comes. Many more stats. So food production is already responsible for 30% of global energy consumption and over a third of greenhouse gas emissions today. And by 2030, it's estimated that the food and drink sector will need 45% more energy. We published an article from ABB Electrification recently, which mentioned about the risk that energy prices are also introducing to the labour market. Basically, they're saying that if the energy challenges do persist, it's expected that 42% will spend less on recruitment, 38% will decrease spending on salaries, overtime and bonuses, and 37% will reduce spend on staff training and development. Ooh, there you go. That's some more bad news for you there. So today's podcast is all about, you guessed it, popcorn, no, energy. (laughs) And uh, how can we keep on producing food at a rate of knots to deliver to the growing population whilst not breaking the bank? Uh, to help us answer this question, uh, we employ the expertise of Rory Kearns, and here, what's, and here is what he had to say. So I'm joined by Rory Kearns, Open Energy Market Director of Risk Management and European Operations, to talk to us a little bit about the most important recent developments in energy, some ways that you can be more efficient within your company and essentially just regulations that we should be be mindful of. So Rory, thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, hi Ben, thanks for having me on. Looking forward to our chat. It's my pleasure. So as I said there in my introduction, um, 
recent developments in energy it feels like every day we're getting different news headlines coming our way it's, it's an absolute minefield so can you uh, attempt to give us the lowdown on the most important developments that we're seeing that's affecting food and drink producers yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think I'll, I'll maybe start by saying I mean, I've, I've now been in energy somehow for almost 20, 20 years. Uh, my first job in the energy industry was back in 2005. And you're, you're absolutely right with how you prefaced that in terms of, you know, there's just one issue after the next. The energy markets are always inherently volatile. Um, over that 18 year period, there's just been issue after issue, um, unforeseen issues, issues in a lot of cases over that period. Um, but that pattern over the, the last couple of years, and in particular over the last 12 months, um, has really gone to, to levels that we've, we've never seen before. Um, it's really not exaggerating to, to say that. Um, you know, really from, the, from the, the start of the COVID pandemic, we had a big collapse in prices um, as demand dropped off a cliff, as we'd, we'd expect to see when, with the sort of shutdown of the global economy. From that point onwards, prices up until the end of last year were really only moving in one direction. Prices were moving steadily up, getting more and more expensive for buyers of, uh, of energy. Now, I would say for most of that period, the trajectory that we were seeing was, was fairly typical of historic volatility. Prices were sort of going to, to levels that we'd seen before and very high levels, um, but nothing particularly out of the ordinary. Um, but from February of last year, after the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, prices got to, to levels that would have been barely believable um, a couple of years ago. So, so to put some sort of context around that, at the start of the pandemic, we were looking at, at energy prices for the front season of under £40 per megawatt hour. Um, in August of last year, prices peaked at £800 per megawatt hour. Um, so you can imagine the strain that that puts on, on buyers, particularly food and manufacturers, who have limited ability to pass on those energy price variances into their cost of their end, end, end product. Um, the, the threat at the end of last year and the reason that prices spiked so much was that with the, the drop off in, in flows of Russian oil and gas into the European markets, there was the very real threat that over the course of this winter, which we're just now coming out of, uh, it's not been a, a great spring, I know, so it still feels a lot wintry where I am up in Scotland at the, at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, over that over that winter that we've we've uh, that we've come come out of, there was the very real threat that we were going to have supply shortages, that there wasn't going to be enough gas to be able to meet uh, to meet demand. Um, now, in some ways, we've we've got a little bit lucky over the course of the the winter period. Um, although it's it's gone on a bit longer than than we expected, the bulk of that winter temperatures were above normal. We didn't have any of those extreme cold spells that we've seen in previous years. You know, going back to 2018, 2013 was a very very cold winter. We got a little bit lucky this winter, um, and as a result, we've been able to come out fairly unscathed. Um, so those sort of worst case scenarios that a lot of the markets were expecting to see at the end of last year haven't really come to fruition. Um, and we have now thankfully started to see a downward, uh, a downward trend again within the energy markets. Um, I mentioned that, you know, there was this threat of, 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 of supply shortages. Um, a lot of that comes down to the limited amount of storage facilities that we have within the UK market. Um, so typically you inject lots of gas into storage during the summer periods and then withdraw it during the winter. Um, you know, if we were to go back to September, October of last year, there was that very real worry that we wouldn't have enough gas in storage to be able to meet that demand. Um, we've actually done incredibly well this uh, this 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 winter. Uh, we've had significant increase in flows of, of liquid natural gas or LNG into the UK markets, um, and as a result, we're in the position where our storage levels are now 64% full, which is a lot higher than where they normally are at this time of uh, at this time of year. Um, so things right now are looking a lot better than where they were previously. Um, there still remains significant upside risk in the market. We're not totally out of the woods yet, uh, but where we are at the moment, prices uh, prices are certainly looking a lot healthier. And um, if if we were to look sort of a bit more specifically at the the sort of food and drink um, industry, you know those buyers really are feeling the pinch as much as anyone. Uh, if we looked at the the, the recent inflation 
figures out. We saw food and beverage and food and drink um, inflation went up to 19.2% in, in March, almost double the, the, the CPI rate of, uh, of, of inflation. Um, so al although that's a significant increase in cost, when you look at how high energy prices are in relation to that food and drink uh, inflation, it's at a far, far greater, uh, far greater scale. So it's really posing significant problems um, to energy, to energy buyers. Um, and then maybe just the final point is, is on top of that, not only um, are our businesses having to, to cope um, with these extremely high levels of prices that we're seeing at the moment, there's also an increasing drive and importance to be able to look to build net zero sustainability strategies at a time when prices are so expensive. Um, so that's something we can get into a little bit a little bit later, but it's a really big focus at the moment is is how can businesses be able to cope with you know these two huge challenges of being able to strip back on carbon emissions, which can come at costs, um, as well as at the same time having these prices, which for a large number of buyers are still higher than ever because they're locked into uh, into high high contracts. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there, um, Rory. Thank you so much for that comprehensive um, introduction. Uh, and it's good to know that it's that it's not all doom and gloom as well. There is hope on the horizon. Um, in terms of the support that has been laid out for for companies, you know, the government um, launched the energy bills relief scheme, um, which has now, I believe, been replaced by the energy bill discount scheme. Um, how do these differ apart from their names? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, so the the energy industry loves more than anything an, an acronym. So, mm. we've got the energy bill relief scheme, which is the EBRS, and the energy bill discount scheme, which is the EBDS. Um, so ultimately, the, I mean, the big change between the, well, I see the two fundamental changes between the two schemes is is the length of the schemes um, and the price at which they become enforced. So first of all, the EBRS, which was announced last autumn, because um, as I mentioned, when prices went up to those extremely high levels, um, it's important to, to you, you really can't understate how much of a travesty that would be if there wasn't help provided, um, you know, prices at £800 per megawatt hour anywhere that in that in that sort of ballpark is catastrophic for the UK economy. It's simply completely unsustainable. Um, so the government had to step in to be able to provide some support. And in, in August, they announced the EBRS. Now, what that did is effectively for the six month period from October of last year to March of this year, um, it effectively capped almost everyone's prices at £211 per, per megawatt hour uh, for um, power and £75 per megawatt hour for gas. Um, now, there were maximum discounts applied to that. So if you had locked in, you know, that, that levels up at 800, you would only be the maximum discounts were £345 for power and £91 for gas. But almost all customers were sitting below that, that level. So for, for, for almost every customer in the UK, their price was effectively capped at £211 per megawatt hour for power and £75 per megawatt hour for gas, which in the way sort of layman's terms, that's 21.1p per kilowatt hour for power and 7.5p per kilowatt hour for, for gas. Um, now that expired at the end of uh, at the end of March, um, and there were at times there was you know quite a lot of of worries that potentially the government were going to completely strip back any support. Um, thankfully, they bowed to, to to pressure, and they were also helped out again by the downward trending market that we've seen right now. Um, they did announce the EBDS, uh, which is the Energy Bill Discount uh, Scheme, so that was announced in in January of this year. Um, as I say, the two differences from the EBRS is, is the length. So it's been extended from six months to 12 months, which is the good news. Um, the bad news is it's uh, the price level at which it becomes enforced is significantly greater than the EBRS. Um, so for um, power, the price now has moved from where it, where it used to apply at £211 per megawatt hour to a level of £302 per megawatt hour. Um, and the, the maximum discount there is only... 19.61 so the most amount of discount that businesses can get is 19.61 pounds per megawatt hour or 1.961 pence per kilowatt hour um for gas that the the, the maximum price is now 107 uh, pounds per megawatt hour or 10.7 pence per kilowatt hour um, and a maximum discount only of six pounds 97 um, so the support is 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 a lot lower on those schemes than it previously was um, 
Now, this is um, a lot of information. So anyone that's listening to this thinking, oh my goodness, that's that's a lot of acronyms uh, and a lot of numbers. Where can businesses, particularly smaller businesses as well, um, go to, to, to get help in understanding all of this? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, and I, I know I've, pr- I've tried to simplify it as much as I possibly can, but unfortunately, the energy <laughs> market doing, you're is You're doing very, a great uh, job. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. It is unfortunately inherently very, uh, very complex. Um, I mean, ultimately, you know, I don't want to give too much of the hard, uh, the hard pitch, but that's that's you know why we, as as Open Energy Market came into the into the industry, um, understanding that it is incredibly complex. Um, and for most lay people out there, there are it's like you know we always joke that when pe- new people come into the business, it's a little bit like learning a new language with all of these new acronyms and terms and mm. and whatnot. Um, it is very complex. Um, so as a business, our objective is to try to take away that complexity, give it to the to the experts who can simplify the processes both through the use of technology and expertise to be able to help that so with anyone listening more more than happy to to have any sort of follow-up discussions to talk through um to talk through anything which we which we cover today um because it's also worth i was when i was covering off the details of those schemes um there's also is another slight layer of complexity there so for um (laughs) you'll 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 notice a theme (laughs) throughout today um but uh, yeah, so there the, the basically is well, there's what's called energy and trade intensive, intensive industries, so ETII. Yes. Um, now for those industries, they can get additional support on top of that. So that won't be applying to everyone. Um, there's a list of government. Um, so it's according to what's called a SIC code on the government website. If, you, if, a, if you're an industry working within one of those sectors, um, you can get more support on top of what was announced. Um, so it's really important for businesses to be checking whether they are due um, any of, uh, any of these, these, these discounts, because that often does get missed. Now, is there any other kind of uh, regulations or support that we should be aware of and that's worth noting? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a there's there's a there's a lot of um, opportunities, I would say, on on the non-commodity side. Um, so when you're looking at your, you know, what we've been talking about so far today, has mostly focused on the commodity element of the of the of the invoice. So looking at the wholesale cost of the gas and the and the power, um, when businesses get invoiced for their energy. It's not just wholesale energy that they get invoiced for. They get invoiced for the transmission, the distribution charges, and now the increasing number um, of renewable energy charges. You've got climate change levy, renewables obligation, a large number of additional acronyms, which which I won't get into right now. Uh, But the the important thing is is that a number of um, industry sectors, um, and importantly for the context of today, a lot of those sectors cover food and drink manufacturing um, qualify for reductions in the value of those uh, of those 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 pass through charges, um, so it's really worth we you know we recommend to every business to be going through that health check, sort of going through understanding, looking not just at the cost of their energy but the cost of all of their non coms. Are they getting all of these at the most efficient rates? Um, because there are some significant savings can be that can be made for for large buyers, um, and again that often does is is missed. We found with businesses who simply weren't aware that there were schemes to be able to get reduction in some of these in some of these charges. Now, you mentioned, you know, um, earlier that you were optimistic that we have seen some softening. Um, I know it's, you also said, you know, it's a very volatile market, so it is quite difficult to predict. I don't think anyone would have really um, predicted what, you know, what happened. Um, But what can we expect? You know, what is likely to happen to energy market prices in in the coming months? I mean, from all, yeah. what I've read, is they're they're falling, but they're still not getting to pre-pandemic levels. Yeah, so we 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 still are quite a bit above pre-pandemic levels, but we're certainly back into you know I, I spoke about the fact that the last twelve months has been this hyperscale, never seen before type of environment. We are thankfully now getting back to something near normality. Um, you know what happens next is is clearly the sixty four thousand dollar question. Um, I'd love to to be able to have a crystal ball and be able to tell everyone this is what's going to happen next. Um, unfortunately, I can't do that. The, the The energy market, as you mentioned, is is incredibly volatile. Um, it's incredibly difficult to be able to make pinpoint predictions over what is going to happen. 
Uh, that's not me sitting on the on 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 the fence. Uh, what we can what we can say is that the situation right now looks significantly better than it did previously. Um, you know, we've we've avoided the sort of catastrophic predictions that we were looking at towards the end of last year. We've got a lot more gas flowing into the UK market. Um, the global market still has a huge amount of gas in it. You know, if you look at the the, the United the market in the United States, for example. Their gas is currently six times lower than the gas that we're paying in, in, the, in the UK, and they're developing a lot of export terminals to bring that gas over into the European market. So there's lots of gas around the world. It's just a logistics issue of being able to move it into the markets. So what we always tend to say is, is all things being equal, is that prices should be or should continue on a downward trend over the course of the next couple of months. Um, the difficulty within the energy market is that all things are, are very rarely equal. Um, the challenge here is always about the, you know, there's when you when you look at what's going to happen, there's always the things that you don't know. And then there's the things that you don't know that you don't know. Um, yeah. And those are the, the difficulties of being able to predict within the energy market. Um, you know, we, we for example, we we, we don't know what the weather is going to be like in 12 months. We don't know how many power plants are going to be going out for maintenance. Those are things that we know that we don't know. Um, but then there's always those things that we don't know yet that we don't know. You know, looking at recently over the last couple of months, we, we've, we've had issues with French nuclear plants, for example, where you know, France gets 70% uh, of its uh, of its entire power generation from nuclear plants, and they found that there's been some cracks in some of those nuclear um, generators, and they might now have to take all of those off uh, off the system. That's a significant upside risk if that was to to materialise. We just didn't know that that was going to be an issue 12 months ago. Um, so any predictions always have to be taken with that grain of salt. Things do look better right now, um, but the energy markets are always quite quick to remind us that you know there's that there are there are those black swan events that happen that happen yeah. fairly regularly. You mentioned net zero as well earlier. Now you you came at it as in a sort of approach that it would be an additional cost, but would going to sort of renewables and 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 I suppose reducing carbon not be more efficient in terms of you know just well planetary health but also in terms of energy costs in the long run yep absolutely so i think this is a really important question and i'm glad that you've you've asked it because you know i think that a lot of businesses do look at it in that way in terms of you know very high energy prices right now and then on top of that you know we potentially have to be installing energy saving uh, saving measures we tend to actually come at it from the other direction is that if that's done properly and you come at it from a really strategical perspective, it is possible that that actually does become a revenue generator and somewhere where you can actually be able to save money through the adoption of these technologies. Um, and that's actually something that we're, we're very excited about over the last 12 months. We've spent a lot of time um, developing a new, new product targeting um, businesses who are looking to go on that net zero uh, journey. Um, and the real whole purpose of that product was to say that for businesses, this you know we shouldn't be looking at this as saying this is something which is going to be costing your business money, because um, it's often very difficult if you're looking to go on that journey. There are so many different options which you can take to go to net zero. Um, you know whether you want to put in energy saving light bulbs or whether you want to do behavioural change opportunities, bring in some solar generation, on-site generation, whatever else it might uh, it might be. It's sometimes very difficult for businesses to decide what they should be doing um, so we've recently been developing a product called called true which is being launched next week and uh, which looks to be able to take all of that pain away and be able to say well okay if there's all of these various different options which one is going to have a the biggest impact onto your carbon emissions and b which will give you the biggest bang for your uh, for your buck because you're absolutely right that that's the way that businesses now need to be looking at it is it doesn't need to be something which will be an additional cost to businesses yeah, there's some interesting research projects going on at, at the moment as well. There's 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 one and um the the university name escapes me. Um, I have to edit that one in. Um, and uh, they're doing an interesting interesting um assessment on how people affect um uh, you know 
kind of efficiency as well in terms of sustainability Absolutely. and I think that's really interesting and and uh, it was Dr Wayne Martindale of the University of Lincoln who said yep. to me that you know people do chaotic things we we do unpredictable things and so assessing that as well as you know our systems is very important in terms of reaching net zero yep. I thought that was a very interesting perspective to have um it's not the University of Lincoln that's doing the study uh, as I said I'll have to find out the name of the university and uh, and and and, and put edit that one in quickly um but in terms of um reaching net zero you mentioned a couple of things there you know um energy efficient light bulbs uh, you know what about um renewables because that seems to be the the big topic on on everyone's um lips at the moment um you know using renewable energy such as um perhaps converting waste streams even into into energy yep. you know how how far ahead are we with innovations like this yeah absolutely so i mean there's there's over the last number of years it's an area which is which is clearly now exploded in terms of its popularity um you're seeing significant growth not just in so when you're looking at renewable generation you really have to split it up between renewable generation which you have on site so something which is yours um, and then you can have off-site generation so you've got the big power plants that are um, producing from 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 renewables you know the big solar plants that you'll you'll, you'll drive past in the in the countryside now if you look at those two separately in terms of the big scale the large scale uh, stuff there what we're seeing is a significant uptake in the number of customers who are buying what are called power purchases purchase agreements so ppas now a power purchase agreement is effectively there's another acronym i know another acronym <laughs> we'll have to have a count of how many there are at the end yeah we'll, we'll play <laughs> um, acronym bingo <laughs> yeah absolutely um so yeah on on the uh, the, the ppa the ppa is effectively a, a direct agreement um between the the producer of a renewable energy agreement and the, the buyer of that uh, of that agreement so it allows businesses who don't have any space for any on-site generation to be able to get that renewable generation into their uh, into their supply contract if we were to go back five or ten years those type of contracts were really the preserve of the uh, of the very large end of the market so those are the super users of, of energy um, and those sort of smaller to medium-sized buyers were we didn't have that access to that market um, that access level has now really come down. So we're really now seeing that, that anyone who's consuming, right now you'd be looking at about above five gigawatt hours, so five million kilowatt hours, um, can now look to get on site, to get to get uh, offsite PPAs in place, corporate PPAs or virtual PPAs, which allows them to be able to get the benefits of those renewable generation without having something on site. Um, wow. And then, and then on site, yeah, abs absolutely. There's, there's, there's been huge growth in the, in the, in the popularity of getting on site generation. And um, that's another area where, again, when you're looking at the cost of putting something in on, on, on site, it's really important to make sure that you have that thorough understanding of not just what it's going to be producing on site, but potentially now there's a large number of schemes uh, from the network operators to, to allow those businesses who do have something on site to be able to benefit by either exporting some of that generated power back into the market or complete uh, com uh, or uh, um, be, be, being involved in what's called the capacity market is another uh, scheme um, where businesses can get paid for having that generation available on the market. So that can really um, impact the financials of of getting uh, of getting those projects on site and approved. Now, in in terms of you know, I mentioned uh, the that research project. Um, looking you know using technology and kind of assessing processes and you know we've spoken about some other kind of um ways to mitigate um kind of overuse of energy shall we say um but are there any ways in which businesses can look to make production more efficient in the short term yeah absolutely so i i think on on that the, the first thing to say is is there really isn't a, a silver bullet um so yeah. there's not one answer here where you can say do this and then all of a sudden this huge crisis that we've had over the last number of, of years will be will be um, averted yeah um, sorry folks. Having, yeah absolutely i wish i wish there was it would make my job a lot easier if there if there was um but despite there not being that single thing there are a large number of potential things that businesses should be looking at um, you know, I mentioned at the start something that's really important is is being able to do that. Just really thorough health check of your full energy expenditure. Make sure that you've you know you've had the full review of all of your non-commodity charges, 
Um, you've looked at um, you know energy audit audits. Um, we've got an upcoming. Uh, I've got another acronym for you here: the targeted charging review, which is TCR, which is uh, quite a big change to the way that businesses are invoiced for their transportation and distribution charges. Um, there's a, again, because there is so much complexity here and there's so many different ways to be able to, to um, avoid some of these charges, it's very difficult for businesses to be able to pick up on all of these uh, on all of, all of these things. So I would just recommend more than anything to be able to do that full health check and make sure um, that you know that you aren't paying for something that you perhaps don't need to be. And, you know, in terms of the future and, and maybe some uh, longer term um strategies i know you said that there's no silver bullet and you know uh, listeners we do apologize for that um uh, uh we'd be very rich if we did have yeah. that answer um but in terms of the the future what is it that perhaps does need to change or, or what is it perhaps that that we could lean on that would make things a bit easier you know it's, yeah. it's not a short-term fix but maybe it's something that's coming down down the line in you know five ten years time yeah absolutely but what what i would i would say i, th I think at the, at the moment is that is the most important thing is for buyers of significant energy contracts right now is is making sure that you do have the proper and adequate risk management strategy in place um you know i mentioned before that energy markets are inherently very difficult to be able to predict I didn't want to paint too much of a bleak picture in terms of saying that you know that okay that's you know we can't we can't do anything it's not possible to be able to predict prices because of that you know businesses really have to be now making sure that they have a strategy that works regardless of whether prices are rising or falling um a lot of businesses often look at energy procurement from a basis of um it's a binary decision you either buy a contract or you don't buy a contract um, that's a very difficult decision to make particularly if you're looking to buy contracts two three four years in advance um you know all of those things that we don't know that we don't know are far greater further on down the line um, there are tools to be able to manage that um so there are there are ways to be able to adopt risk management strategies that says well this will perform well if market prices are rising and it will perform well if market prices are, are falling and um, so that's really important to do is, is look at the risk management how you're buying those contracts um, and make sure that all of your eggs aren't going into one basket because if it's just that binary decision of buying a contract or not buying a contract it's only going to work if the move if the market moves in one uh, if, in one direction so that's really vitally important um, I mentioned previously long-term PPAs, um, that's becoming more and more popular. Um, the, the really good thing with PPAs, that's the Power Purchase Agreement for anyone that doesn't remember the acronyms, um, they are, uh, they, they're, they're typically five or ten year contracts, so they're much longer term contracts when they're put in place, uh, but the benefit is, is that you usually get them below where current market prices are. So if there's businesses that are looking at the cost of renewal contracts and saying that's too expensive, it may be that there's a longer term option, a five or 10 year contract with a power purchase agreement um, that will be able to, to avoid some of that short term term hit. Um, and then and then finally, um, looking at all of those things that we were talking about in terms of on-site generation, um, export opportunities, any demand side re reduction opportunities, participating in the capacity market. Um, there's now loads and loads of schemes as the energy market, particularly the electricity market is 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 changing. There's more and more opportunities for for energy buyers to to be able to to sort of reduce the burden of the high energy prices that we've seen recently. Thank you so much, Rory. Some really excellent nuggets of information there. Um, and we hope you listeners find that useful. No problem at all. Nice to speak to you. You too, Rory. Thank you very much. market um Gwen very important uh, question for you did you win at acronym bingo uh, I must say that uh, I do like a good acronym I'll throw them in whenever I can um so I'm appreciative of uh the number that we did see yeah it was great and the grand prize um of the person that did win acronym bingo is information hmm. 
you lucky thing. Um, but really, we do hope that was um, informative. I think that there were some really great insights from Rory, and it's good to hear that the situation is improving. I should also note that the projects I reference in the discussion, um, the work of Dr. Wayne Martindale or the University of Lincoln, is called S3. So it is the University of Lincoln, but it's also, it was the university that escaped me, it's the University of Cambridge. Um, this also, um, the consortium is also made up of Let Us Grow. Um, they were actually on one of our webinars quite recently. They are a vertical um, farming company and Rainer Food as well. Um, so you'll know them because they are guys that um, are, are doing the digital sandwich and, are, and a lot of great things. In digital system. sandwich and previous food manufacturer company of the year. Yes, absolutely. There you go. I think that the push to net zero, um, I was really interested actually that Rory was he, he kind of sounded pessimistic about it to start with. When I, I sort of probed a bit further, he did say, you know, it, it is going to be it is going to be helpful. But um, and I do think it is going to help drive energy bills down. But as he said, it's difficult to know as a business what to invest in and 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 how to even address net zero. Um, he mentioned that they're they've they're sort of producing a, a tool called True, um, aptly named, um, to try and find out really what is the the, the the best way um, to address it. But I was doing some digging around this um, and it's actually predicted that a rapid transition to net zero could save you between five and $15 trillion. I haven't converted that into sterling. I really should have, shouldn't I? But we're, <laughs> should we put some quick maths in here? Quick maths. Quick maths. We're doing this in real time, of course. At yep. uh, one, uh, 12 trillion essentially 12 points 12.06 trillion dollars uh, pounds sorry <laughs> great <laughs> british pounds sterling we're journalists we're not mathematicians okay but in order to achieve net zero we need to understand how to measure and manage scope free emissions right that's incredibly challenging i've been learning a lot more about that lately um because of the round table that we're putting together this thursday i'm sure it will be in the past by the time this podcast goes out scope-free emissions are kind of the key because they are the the biggies. They're the ones that make up the most. So um, for anyone that doesn't know, scope-free emissions are sort of um, those that aren't, I suppose, directly within your control. So how your consumers are sort of using your 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 product and, and the emissions that it's creating from that. So I suppose food waste um, could be um, considered a, a scope-free emission. So um, you know, a consumer buying something, then obviously just throwing it away obviously contributes to that. Mm. Um, there you go. That's a very um, short explanation of these very complicated ones. But yeah, I mean, I actually spoke with someone the other day and, they, you know, I said to them, um, you know, are we actually ever going to be able to untangle scope-free emissions? And they, they actually said to me, it's not impossible. It's not impossible. They didn't tell me how. <laughs> No, that's the rub, you see. It is, it is. But, you know, um, I think there's, you know, Gwen, what's your thoughts on this in terms of, of net zero and it being a, a good opportunity to, I suppose, cut down energy bills? I mean, you can only affect uh, what you can personally affect at the end of the day. Um, when it comes to scope-free, um, as you've already mentioned, it's kind of out of your power. Aside from physically forcing somebody at gunpoint to, to throw their plastic into the recycling bin we do not condone that no of course but there's no way of you physically controlling what a consumer does there are obviously steps that you can take um uh, and this yeah in in every part of the food chain um education is always uh, a, a phrase that's thrown around you know whether it's educating consumers on what's healthy food educating consumers on food waste, educating consumers on their carbon emissions. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, a, a manufacturer can do what they can to, you know, to reduce their scope two by, you know, using only electric vehicles, for example, or reducing their scope one by making sure that they choose only the most energy efficient forms of energy. So when it comes to scope three, sure, you can't physically force someone mm. uh, to do, do um, what is morally the correct way to handle emissions but you know we can always educate people to be better at it interesting that you said that because i went to the uh city lecture um a couple of weeks ago um i don't know what day it is what week it is was it a couple of weeks ago was it last week i don't know was it yesterday um but i went there 
And um, interestingly, a lot of people said education and sustainability will only have a marginal impact. And and really, it was it was government change. So change to industry, change to regulation that will have the most impact in terms of sustainability. It wasn't the it wasn't agreed across the whole panel, but the majority certainly said education. You know, time and time again, we've tried to educate people, and it's just not working. And it wasn't just about sustainability; it was about health as well. Hmm. Um, <laughs> Gwen's like, you're wrong. No, I, um, I mean, I, I'm a full-blown Brit. I'm very cynical. I'm very um, glass half full about things. So people don't listen. But uh, what's a regulation going to do to stop someone still doing it it can't it's it, you know it kind of comes down to the idea of uh, going back to forcing them to do it mm. but I maybe suppose, that's what we need uh, well, i mean if you have a complete lack uh, of faith in humanity perhaps you know that that that, that people can't if you if you truly believe that people cannot change that we're kind of doomed into a spiral of of forever throwing our um, plastic bottles directly into landfill and the only way to stop that from happening is to regulate so that there is no landfill that there is no chance i mean absolutely that that is correct what what is being said there is absolutely correct if we if we made it so that there is no option there is no choice then then you always get the same outcome all the time but this isn't a new issue this is something that is has been around for years and years and years, and a change of regulation will obviously help. But I don't think we should completely give up. No, I feel like we've written the next dystopian tale there, <laughs> haven't we? Get rid of landfills. What would it be called? We'll come back to you next yeah, month. Next month we'll, we'll have a nice title for our dystopian fiction on the future of food and exactly. manufacturing. Maybe we maybe we could read a chapter of it every episode. I don't know if we want to become that kind of podcast. I don't know. I think we should also um, point to an interesting feature that we ran on the website from Barry Hurst of NLX, um, who mentioned um, a point that was also flagged by Rory. Um, he, he called it something different. He called it virtual power plants. Um, and we'll pop a link into the uh, company text for this podcast, as there's some really, really great insights in there as well. Um we really do hope this podcast proved useful um, or, or at least entertaining. Um, and if you've got any other tips and tricks for saving on energy costs, why not let us know? You can get in touch at foodman at wrbm.com. And whilst you're at it, why not also give us a like and subscribe so you never miss an episode or a chapter of the dystopian tale that we're going to start writing. Um you can also subscribe for free to our website to get unlimited access to features such as the ones we mentioned in this episode and to receive our daily newsletters. You do know that you want to do that. You definitely do. So I think that's all that's left to say, isn't there, Gwen? Except do you want to do the goodbye this week? I'll take it from here. Go yes. on. Although technically I did do the goodbye last time as well oh. since I was there, the only oh, person. you did. You did. Oh, no. Well, you were so good at it. <laughs> there you go. Either way, thank you very much for listening to us this month. And we do hope that you come back again. We do. Please come back again. <laughs> I'm not needy. We'll catch you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.